This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer, engineer, and producer Grady Saxman. In the short time that Grady's been in Nashville, he's built a solid reputation as not only a drummer, but a great engineer and producer. He stays busy running his own studio full-time, Saxman Studios, and in the studio he works on everything from just drum tracks to demo recordings, singles and EPs to fully produced records. Grady's credits include many indie artists and writers to high-profile artists like Luke Combs and Uncle Cracker. If you're interested in finding out more about this episode and all of the over 250 episodes that we've done here at Working Drummer Podcast, you can find us at workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Stitcher, iTunes, where you can subscribe to us. You can also follow us and subscribe to us on Spotify. Check us out there. So for those of you that are Patreon members, there's a brand new video on our page that you can access with a couple PDFs, something that I personally put together that was a challenge for me and a lot of fun to do, kind of a hand-foot combination thing that I discovered during the shutdown time where we all are spending maybe a little bit more time practicing and working on some new skills. So if you are a Patreon member, you can access that. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member and supporting this podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash working drummer. If Patreon isn't your thing, then we have a PayPal option on our website. You can go there and make a one-time donation. We appreciate everyone's help over the years in keeping this podcast going strong. This was a perfect time to talk to somebody like Grady Saxman about the stuff that he's doing in his studio. So many of us right now are cooped up and spending time learning and growing our recording skills. And uh, he is an open book when it comes to sharing a lot of these techniques. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with Grady Saxman. I kind of have my little system down to where I'm, I'm basically like playing half as much as I'm producing. And most of the stuff... Well, actually, all the stuff I produce, I end up playing on. So I'm, I'm still playing a lot. But then if I'm not playing drums, it's basically de- uh, like working with vocalists. We have an opportunity to talk to so many wonderful drummers and get great information. But I, when I have an opportunity to talk to somebody that has experience in producing and engineering, I, I, I like to dive a little bit deeper into that. But I don't want to take away from what you do drumming-wise either. But... Oh, totally. No, man, I'm a, I'm an open book with that stuff because I, I, when, when I was learning how to engineer, I had a couple friends that I really trusted that were great engineers that would answer my like idiotic questions all the time. And so like, I've always told people I have so much to pay forward because, um, if it wasn't for, for like some buddies of mine in the beginning, I mean, I would be lost still in the engineering department. Cause I never thought growing up that I'd ever need to learn how to engineer or do any of that stuff. You know, I just was going to be a drummer. I was going to teach. I was going to be, I wanted to be a clinician and, um, and travel kind of like, like a Benny Greb or like a Mike Johnson type of thing. Like, like basically build a career as like a teacher and, um, do like, um, drum curriculum. And I, before I moved to Nashville, I used to teach, um, drumline and I would, I taught at a music academy, 
uh, in Texas while I was going to college. And so like that was kind of what I thought my career path was going to be. And so when I went to school, they offered an audio engineering course and I was like, nah, man, I'm never going to have to use that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Little do we know. Well, tell me about those those guys that you were talking to. Let's let's dive maybe into the engineering part of it. What was did you end up taking that class at all? What got you into doing some engineering? So, pure necessity, to be honest. Um, what? So, I moved to town, and um, my my biggest goal I wanted to play on sessions, right? So, that was that was always there in the background. The uh, the first chance I had to partner with somebody and going in on a studio, I think was like 2012. So I might have been here for two years, and I I've been doing gigs and stuff, but I was 22 maybe. So like. I think, you know, like in Nashville, especially back then, this was 2010, um, it's a very much like 21 and up town, you know, I don't know how it is now. It might be a little bit easier to go out and network, but I didn't really know that I moved here. Like I had just turned 20. Fortunately enough, I got like a, a little touring gig doing, uh, like, uh, like the touring cover band thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, which isn't really a thing anymore, ironically. It's like harder and harder to do that now. Um, but so I, I was I was gigging and um, the bass player I was uh, playing these shows with, he he had acquired a bunch of um, recording gear um, from like he used to he used to tour manage bands uh, in L.A. And so he had he had made like a good chunk of change and invested in some recording gear. And I, uh, before I moved up to Nashville, was doing a bunch of recording for a small label in Texas. And so I was driving back and forth to be a part of projects in Texas. And uh, this was kind of when file sharing was becoming more and more of a thing. And so I was like, man, I just want to get a spot where I can cut drums and send tracks over the Internet to my friends in Texas that I'm still driving down to like play on records for. Yeah. And so that's kind of how it started. So me and um, me and the bass player of the band, we started looking around for spots, and we got really lucky with a spot down on Music Row. And we uh, we leased like this four four room uh, suite in the old Warner Brothers building. So it had been professionally built out in the seventies, and uh, we just kind of stumbled across it, right timing and. Um, anyway, we just kind of took a leap of faith and, and jumped in it. And, uh, that's kind of where I learned is just out of necessity. Like I started doing drum tracks for people and I just had to learn how to press record and what sounded good and phasing. And, uh, I fortunately, like, I think that being a drummer, I mean, drums are one of the hardest things to really capture in the studio. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of having an understanding of how the drum kit works in general, definitely influenced the way that I chose to engineer the drums. Um, but then after kind of getting a grasp on how to engineer drums, it made everything else a lot easier. As far as like uh, now working with vocalists and other instruments? Sure. Yeah. Like, um, you know, getting all 12 drum mics to, uh, to move together in phase and, and sound good is a lot harder than taking one, condenser and miking an acoustic in theory just it all depends on the player and the instrument but sure like getting getting a sound from an acoustic that i liked it became a lot easier once i understood you know mic placement and stuff from working with drums and having to move 10 to 12 mics around all the time and 
basically starting to learn the nuances of, you know, like what a different, uh, like what different space between the sound source and the mic will do and, and angling it to where it, you know, you're, you're messing with on axis versus off axis, tilting it up, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of mic placement stuff. And back in the, when I was first starting, I didn't have any EQs there. We didn't have any outboard EQs. So a lot of what I did was just kept, I kept moving the mic until stuff sounded good. Wow. Basically. So, so, I mean, I, I imagine then there isn't the, uh, amount of youtube content that's available now now it's there's so much stuff that it seems like it's almost overwhelming it's almost too much yeah yeah there's definitely a disconnect between like the youtube academy i guess you could call it you know like uh the the legion of of people that have studios and engineer and put out information online versus stuff that's actually tried and true and useful and you know what i mean i yeah so there there are there are people out there that kind of give advice without having done it on a professional level i guess would be a good right. way of saying it right right so they kind of clutter up a lot of the really good information but there are there are um different websites like lynda.com which i was bought out by uh uh i can't remember the other the other company that bought them out, but there was a company called lynda.com and, and basically it was like online courses, like mm-hmm. almost like co- college courses that you could pay for. It was like a monthly, you know, maybe 15 or 30 bucks a month and you got access to all these courses and it wasn't even over just recording. It was anything like if you needed to learn Adobe Photoshop, there was like 30 hours of courses Oh my gosh! that you could, Yeah. So I did. I did learn some stuff through Linda as well. A little bit later on, is that um, L I N D A, L Y L Y N D A L Y N D A? And you say mm-hmm. that's maybe not around anymore, but it was bought out by someone. You can still find it. Uh-huh. Uh, what is the? Uh, there was a. There was like a Facebook for professionals. You remember what that thing was called? I do not. It was it was almost like a social network only, but it was like supposed to be really just for working professionals. LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn. That's of course. It. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yeah. LinkedIn bought Linda. So now it's called LinkedIn Learning, but you can still you can still re, like you can still Google Linda dot com and it'll it'll go to LinkedIn Learning. Yeah. Uh, one of the many reasons why we wanted to talk to you was there's so much information right now with people being stuck at home. Uh, a lot of drummers are scrambling to get their recording uh, set up together. Uh, a lot of drummers have been doing it for some time. But uh, the the kind of online recording and the home studio thing has ramped up so much. And again, there's so much information out there. I get, I mean, even when we were getting ready to, ready to talk, I... You know, I mentioned I, I was watching a tutorial on, you know, Universal Audio plugins. And it, I never thought that I would be interested in stuff like this. But out of necessity, you know, they're, they're, drummers have to wear many hats. You have to play drums and be part engineer and part producer and arranger and other things like that. I mean, it's, it's not, I guess I say necessity, that may be 
a little hyperbolic if 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 that's not what you want to do or if you have the ability to just play drums. Uh, but it is a really cool outlet for creativity and network and creating music and finding more work. Uh, but right. I th- so but so I think what you're doing is and what you have been doing is at a level that maybe someone would want to get into or maybe it's not at a level that drummers want to get into but they they need to pull from what you've learned so um i did write down mic placement i just i I had no question i just wrote it down (laughs) totally the the two biggest factors of recording good drums is starting with a good source is very important um, and then also your phase, right? So phase and polarity often get confused. Mm. Polarity just means that you, if you were to look on um, your DAW, like your uh, your peaks and your valleys are all going up together at yes. the same time. Yeah. And a lot of people consider that phase, but phase is, is a little bit more complicated than that. It has to do with the actual room environment as well, right? So um, you can you can be in polarity and still be out of phase in your room, right? Okay, interesting. I didn't know that. That's cool. Um, yeah, there's and there's also different things to keep in mind too. Like I've I always if I, if I'm ever working with a really great engineer, I always I always try to like poke and pry and ask some questions and try to learn some new stuff too. Um, but um, I was working with a guy one time who told me something very interesting that. He always tries to put his overheads in thirds, right? So uh, that meaning, like if you were to, from floor to ceiling, say you had eight feet to yeah. work with, he would try to put his overhead six feet up. That way he would he would break the eight feet into to thirds mm. as close as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he would have it, you know, a little under five feet. Um, and the, his reasoning is... Um, it's like, say you hit a snare drum, uh, the waveform of that snare drum is going to kind of cancel itself out in the middle of the room. So if you have eight feet, four feet is going to be a node, essentially. Yeah. Um, and the same thing kind of goes with um, the length of the room as well and the size of the wave of the drum. You know, that this all has to do with frequencies. Um, so anyway, he said, being in a third... Uh, of the distance between the ceiling and the floor made a big difference because you were less likely to um, occur any nodes of the yes. frequencies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and did you put that to practice in your studio? Well, I did. I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, before I was only working with about seven and a half feet of ceiling height, so that the mics just were going to be where the mics were going to be. Yeah. But uh, I did, I vaulted my ceilings to 12 feet. So now wow. um, I do have my my mics kind of close to that third mm-hmm. of, of the height of the room. And that really, really helps. Also, just um, unfortunately for drums, uh, just ceiling height is so important because the what makes what makes drums breathe on a recording, is the uh, the lack of close reflections, okay? <clears throat> so um, the closer your walls are, the faster they're going to reflect into the mic, kind of clouding up the direct sound a little bit. Yeah. It's not going to be as punchy. Yeah. It's not going to be as clear. Um, uh, the good news is one way to combat that, 
So like, imagine like uh, you're playing racquetball, right? Yeah. Imagine your snare drum is like when you hit the ball, that ball is your 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 sound wave, right? And it's bouncing across the um, all of the reflective surfaces in that racquetball room, right? Yeah, right. Um, so the uh, velocity of which you hit the snare is going to directly determine how long that ball is going to ricochet around the room. So if you're working in a small room, it's very, very important that you play at small volumes. Oh, right. Okay. All right. So if you want, you know, like even if it's a rock and track, um, mixing yourself for the room is really important when you're specifically talking about home recording because you, you might not have, you know, 20 cubic feet of floor space mm-hmm. that you can let that sound kind of naturally die down. So if you're in like a bedroom, like a 10 by 12, you got some absorbing materials on the walls, or maybe you've built some bass traps or something that's going to really help with the energy. But if you start playing at a level that is more than what the, like the amount of absorption in the room can handle, you know what I mean? Right. Then, uh, you're going to start hitting, you're going to start getting phase issues, even if your polarity is good. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's a great description. And and so many of us have limited space that we're working with unless we take over, you know, the living room for a couple mm-hmm. weeks. And that's, I mean, and, and, and when you're working in those limited spaces, that's the, that's when you really, really need to be um, conscious of your dynamics. Cause a microphone really doesn't care how hard you hit it. I mean, that's kind of a misconception that, that I don't know. I think it came from like that seventies or eighties where like you really did have to cr- smack the crap out of your snare to get it over the cymbals and the room mics, you know, yeah. in a big commercial studio. Uh-huh. Um, and you had all the absorption and uh, the actual like square footage of the room to let it decay naturally. But now if in, in like the quote unquote bedroom recording world, um, that snare, I mean, when you hit the snare and this is all within reason, right? Like you don't have to like, really smack the crap out of it because then it's just splaying all over the room mm-hmm. and and every time it comes back into that 57 you're causing some phase issues also it, it's more important in the overheads as well i mean to p- not play your cymbals super loud there's always you can always compress it later and make it sound exciting um but the biggest thing i would say like if you're in a room that is limited by space is just trying to control your dynamics and you'll be amazed at just how much your touch will affect, um, the end result of the drums, like just popping out of those speakers and having the separation and the width that you want out of the drums. And how much your neighbors will like you for not your neighbor. Your, yeah. Your neighbors will like you. Your wife will love you more. <laughs> uh, you sound like a man of experience here. Um, with <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, um I love that. And 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 the racquetball analogy applies to this scenario too as if you just kind of just lob the ball slowly, you can see how it moves slowly giving if you're the microphone and you, you know, you lob that ball, it's going to reflect back slower to you and give it a chance to do the things that it's supposed to do is is what I'm taking away from that. 
exactly. Yeah, it's it's gonna it's gonna give the the microphone more of an opportunity to catch the direct sound, mm-hmm. which is what you ultimately want. You don't want the wall that's three feet away from your snare drum to be just bouncing right back into the snare. Yeah. Um, also, that's another thing I guess that's worth mentioning. Like, if you do have close walls, um, try try to use your absorption there. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Um, in the spaces that are a little bit closest to the drums. So like when my room was smaller, when I had shorter ceilings, um, I had eight foot ceilings. And so what I did to kind of combat having a ceiling right above my, my cymbals is I put a cloud above mm-hmm. my, my actual overheads. And that kind of gave the illusion of having a bigger space because <clears throat> if I was playing at the appropriate dynamics, it um, was able to absorb that sound energy efficiently to where it felt like it was going way past the mic and not really coming back for a while. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That seems to be a big thing right now. And also mm-hmm. absorption that is mobile, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I know Matt Billingsley uses um, curtains and uh, even Steve Brewster has uh, spaces and, and absorption that he can move around the room Right. Well, and and I think it's also kind of important to note that Steve has like a facility. He does. You know, so <laughs> seventeen foot ceilings. <laughs> right. So like his reasoning for his absorption and stuff being mobile is kind of to change sounds. But if you're in like a ten by twelve, you need you need a sound that works. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> I want to get hung up on the fact that you need to be like able to reverse something and use the wood side to reflect or anything like sure. that. Sure. You know? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And and you know it's interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a chance to interview Christian Pascal, and he was talking about, look, if this is the space you have, then find your sound, and that's your sound. And it, right. And 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 not feel like you have to have all these different sounds. If you're limited with your space, don't let that slow you down to create. Yeah, don't don't sacrifice the integrity of your room just just on the fact that you feel like you need more options in your sound. You know, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like a song too. It's like you we've all played songs that are people have tried to produce it into something it's not. You know what I mean? Same thing can happen with the room. If it's if it's a bedroom, then go for a tight, dry sound. You're not going to really have much success with a real boomy, reverberant, reverberant um, mm-hmm. room sound in a small room. You just don't have the square footage to allow for that kind of decay. So why not just embrace the the limitations and go for a tight, vibey drum sound? You know what I mean? Right. This is my sound. Who needs it? Uh, and, you know, I've talked to friends and I've got a small practice space that uh, I've done a little bit of recording in, and it's definitely that small. I mean, one day it'd be nice to turn it into a, an amp booth. But, uh, you know, I've got friends that say, you know, man, just record in there. And if you want to, uh, at, you can add plugins, you can add room to it through effects. I mean, yeah. is that a good argument? Is that a viable it option? Totally is. Mm-hmm. Totally is. Yeah, like if 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 I was in that situation, <clears throat> you'd be amazed what just putting some reverb on the drum rooms do. So say like you have a ten by ten room or a ten by twelve, yeah. put your room put your room mics in the corner 
And honestly, what, what I would even do is a lot of people would, would try to go for like a large diaphragm or like a ribbon mm-hmm. or something like that. But then you're going to be getting a lot more of the room. You might even could get away with using 57, something that's even more directional and put them to where they shoot the farthest distance away from the room or like take two 57s if you want your rooms to be stereo, point them at the wall as that you're looking at, you know what I'm saying? From your drumming position. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you would be extending the, so if you put it kind of in front of the kick drum, point it away from the kick drum at the wall, you'd be extending the length of the room double, you know what I mean? Cause you would be getting the reflection off the wall and not the, this, um, direct sound if you were to point it at the drums. Yeah. Yeah. And what large diaphragm microphones are you referring to aside from a 57? Uh, so like a large diaphragm would be of the condenser type. Um, mm-hmm. it could be anything like a lot of people like, like the Aston spirits and those are, those are fine. Anytime that you incorporate a large diaphragm, you're just going to, you're going to hear more of the room. So mm-hmm. if your room is some, is your, if your room is, you know, something of somewhat of a limitation, you might want to avoid using microphones that are going to pick up more of the room of the sound of the room. So like anything that you can do to kind of pick mics that are cardioid that are going to basically pick up the sound that's right in front of them and like a 57. Yeah. And yeah. even large diaphragms are cardioid, but it's, if you use like a pencil condenser, it's going to be even more cardioid. You're going to get even less, even tighter of a sound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're trying to like, you, you want to get size and, you know, um, give the impression of size, but you don't want the bad sound of the room than mm-hmm. that more direct sound. Yeah, that's great. I love that, man. It's really cool. So, so like, if I was, uh, for instance, just hypothetically, the first thing I would try if I was in a 10 by 12 room is I would take, I wouldn't do a space pair probably because the limitation of the ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. So I would probably get one mic stand and do an XY. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, it's basically like a 90 degree. You put the, the tips of the pencil condensers together at a 90 degree angle in the middle of your drum kit. And what that does is is it for phasing, it's amazing, right? Yes. So yeah. um, the sound of the snare in the room coming through those overheads is going to be great. You're not going to get... Um, so like with a space pair, that snare might not be directly in the center. You're going to get different wall reflections kind of coming into it because... It maybe your snare is closer to the left wall than it is the right wall, so that left wall is going to reflect into the left spaced pair condenser quicker than the right, and so it'll be maybe a little bit more washy. But if you have something in like a XY, or I don't even know what they call the other position, but it's kind of like a reverse XY, mm-hmm. where both both of the microphones are still in the center; they're just not at a ninety degree at the tip. They're more like a ninety degree at the butt of the pencil gotcha. condenser. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, either one of those is going to work great, and it increases the distance to the cymbals because you're going at a forty five degree angle from farther away. Yeah. Then if you were going to be like, uh, you know, sixteen inches above it, you know, or two feet above, you would be three feet diagonal, but still the same height that you would be in the in the room. Gotcha. So I would probably start with that and see how that sounded. And then I would I would take 257s and put them uh, facing away from the drum kit 
at the t and point them towards the back wall. And that would be my overhead in my room situation. And then I would just put reverb on the rooms if I wanted them to be longer. Yeah. And how close to the wall on the 57s? How far, maybe how far away? As far, as far away from the wall as possible. So basically as close to your drums, uh -huh. but pointed, but pointed away from your drums wow. to the wall. Yeah. That's, man, I've never heard that before. That makes so much sense though. It's really cool. Well, yeah, because it's it's cardioid, and in the fifty sevens, I, I don't know if they're hypercardioid, but they're really cardioid, right? So, mm -hmm. you're, basically, the sound that you're going to get is going to be the sound that's reflected off the wall. So, if you have six feet from your kick drum to the wall, now you have twelve feet. That's crazy. That's you know, yeah. Uh, what about? Have you used the Glenn Johns? Am I saying that right? My yeah. setup. Yeah, uh, I have before. I haven't in a long time, but uh, those would be two large diaphragm condensers, one on top of the snare. Basically, mm -hmm. I think I think it's like thirty-three to thirty-six inches up, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then one uh, the same equal distance from the snare, but above the floor tom, so thirty-three, thirty inches, whatever. Basically, what I would do is <clears throat> find like position your drums where where, where it makes sense. Um, take the large diaphragm condenser for your floor tom and you're going to want it to be like maybe two inches off the outside rim and yeah. maybe two inches up, four inches up, something like that, pointed at the snare. Uh -huh. Measure from the middle of the snare to that and then use use that measurement to, to, um, to place your overhead mic. Right, right. I've had some good success with that in my small room and uh, in a living room. I've got that I set up from time to time when I can talk my family into giving up that space. And yeah, and I mean it's that worked for decades. I mean it's never going to be a bad a bad thing. It it really just boils down to like kind of what the purpose of the tracks are. I mean if you're trying to cut a pop country track, you're not going to do it with Glenn Johns. It's just not going to work. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there won't be enough. You, you at, need, at least need to have every drum isolated um, on a microphone so there could at least be like a, a trigger or something that people could put on it to mix, you know, mix in what they want. Gotcha, gotcha. What about if somebody has two microphones mm -hmm. to work with? Uh, mono overhead and uh, put, it, put one, the other one in front of the kick drum. Mm-hmm. And what about somebody with four microphones? Um, if you only had four mics, okay, let me think about it. And one of them was a Radio Shack lapel. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, I'm like, well, <laughs> this is awfully specific. <laughs> it's the well, What size is your room, Matt? <laughs> yeah. You know those, you know those square cassette recorders from the 1980s, and that little microphone, that that dictation microphone that comes with it. What if that's all you had? Okay. Well, it's like, yeah. Do, well, do they have their childhood karaoke machine, and could they right. use the tape? Could they use the cassette deck in there to record over? Um, <laughs> And how do you share that? <laughs> yeah, how do you upload from the cassette to Dropbox? <laughs> Four mics. Let's uh, let's say. Ah, oh, man, that's, that's tough. You could. Re it really depends. I mean, if you're gonna go for like a lo-fi mm -hmm. kind of thing, then yeah. what I would what I would do is like snare top, kick in, um, mono overhead, and then hi hat. Mm. Okay. Um, 
And that would be if it's going to be kind of like a, a funky drummer kind of thing, you know, like a Motown, lo-fi. Um, the hi-hat's super important um, for that stuff. So you'd, you'd probably want to get something on that. Um, and if not the hi-hat, then I don't know if I do snare bottom or I do kick out, but, but maybe a crotch mic, something that mm. you could have fun with, like mm-hmm. uh, put over the kick drum underneath the ride cymbal if you're playing like the, the Ringo type four piece kit. And then at least you're going to get a little bit more attack from those two toms. Yeah, um, I've seen that cause, done. Because mm-hmm. it'll split the difference of the two toms. Um, and, and that would work probably pretty good. Um, it'd be nice if you could have five and then you could have a, you know, both your mics or both your, uh, toms at least mic'd. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, some interfaces, they, they come with two or four, you know, and then you get into more, but if, if somebody's just starting out kind of how they, based on the limitation, let me ask you about the hi-hat because I've worked with engineers that, Sometimes they don't even mic the hi-hat. And, uh, you know, some, if I'm getting a monitor mix and if I want a little bit of hi-hat, I may look over there and there's no there's no microphone. And I've asked, you know, hey, it's like, well, you know, it doesn't always get mixed, doesn't always get used. And you just mentioned, you know, depending on the style, of course, there's all different techniques. There's all different kind of micing placement depending on the music that you're recording. So this, I know this, it's it's really kind of wide open, but I do notice that, the hi hat doesn't get as much. Doesn't get any love. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? <clears throat> well, uh, there's. I don't know. There's nothing more crippling than when you need to turn up the hi hat and you don't have a hi hat mic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, if you don't have a hi hat mic, and like say from the drummer's perspective, if you're playing in a studio that you don't have a hi hat mic, does that mean that you're going to want to play the hi hat a little louder? Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, and yeah. And if you play the hi hat a little louder, does that mean you're gonna have more hi hat bleed in the snare mic? Maybe, I don't know. To me, it open. I mean, it's just. Uh, I guess. I guess for the type of music I do, the hi hat is. Um, I mean, it's it's like almost as important as the kick and snare. I mean, those are your subdivisions. If you don't have a mic on that, I don't play my hi hat really loud because I don't like to have a bunch of hi hat bleed in my snare. So without a hi-hat mic, I mean, it would force me to play my hi-hats a little harder than I would want to. Yeah, yeah. No, um, it is interesting with in-ear monitoring being more the norm than anything. There's ways that we play the drums differently now, uh, even live, that sometimes is good and bad. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. we overplay cymbals because we've got our in-ears that are protecting our, the sound and and we can turn things up and down the way a guitar player always has. And sometimes we forget how to mix ourselves. But there's also ways that we can influence the way we balance our playing and kind of EQ ourselves uh, volume-wise mm-hmm. on the kit by... I mean, there's times that I'll turn up the hi-hat so I don't overplay it, you know, and all those cymbal sounds that can be overdone. <clears throat> yeah, cymbals are the devil. Uh, like for engineers, they hate cymbals. Yeah. Um, so anything that you can do to not be the bad drummer that bashes his cymbals, I mean, that, that'll that go a long way in, in people like <laughs> appreciating you being there. Yeah. Um, but in order for that to happen, the drummer needs to be monitoring um, something that's relatively close to what is... It's what it sounds like out out front, you know what I mean. So, 
um, it doesn't really do a drummer any justice giving them just a crap ton of kick and snare and burying the rooms and the overheads because you 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 will have kind of like a a misjudgment of how to mix yourself in the room. Yeah, it's interesting. But honestly, that's a huge part of it's a huge part of playing on a, on a session is is mixing yourself, mixing your levels. Right, <clears throat> right. Um, so it, and being deliberate about it, you know, like, and I, I think the biggest thing and the 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 crash symbols and stuff don't really tend to bother people a whole lot. It seems like at least the guys that are working in town, like no one really just uncontrollably bashes their symbols. Um, the biggest the biggest difference I would say is people's hi hat technique. You know, some people play the hi hat loud, some people play it soft. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's kind of one thing that really separates drummers, I think, is the way they approach playing the hi hat. I have right now two rooms. Like I have an A room and a B room, which seems kind of crazy because um, I'm only really working with like a thousand square feet of studio space. Um, but my A room, I would consider like my tracking room. It's kind of the shared space where my drums are and where I engineer most of the sessions. <clears throat> and I'm running a 32 channel Orion interface. And I'm, I think I have like, almost 16 channels of API. I'm almost running my drums through an API console. Wow. Um, the first two channels are going through the actual API channel strips. Mm-hmm. So they're getting EQ'd and compressed on the way in. And then um, my toms are going through the 3124 um, into a little EQ before it hits the before it hits Pro Tools. And then I got... My condenser, I have two sets of overheads. My condensers are a, a space pair, and those are going through another set of 312s. My rooms are going through 312s. And then the only thing on my drum kit that's not is my, uh, I have a set of ribbons that are in the middle of my kit as well. And I'm I'm pushing those through some Neves just because I'm really to enhance like kind of that dark, gushy kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think my sub kick might be hitting something not API, but other than that, everything else is all API. Um, and then, and it's out, it's outboard API. I mean, yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't have, I'm like, I'm, my interface is the, uh, antelope Orion. So there's no, it's not like an Apollo with any, um, DSP built in. It's purely just converting an analog signal to Uh digital. Gotcha. So all I'm, all of my sounds are coming, uh, basically in analog. Yeah. Which, I mean, there's a whole different debate about EQing analog versus digital because if you're EQing an analog, it changes the polarity. It changes the waveform. Interesting. Um, so where changing it digitally does not change the waveform. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's a whole nother. We can spend you know an hour just talking <laughs> about that. <laughs> Um, but your desktop but in, looks looks pretty badass though, with with everything thanks, laid out. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, I, it, it's it's been a long time coming, but yeah, I'm, I'm running. I really like my setup that I have now. I got you know two lunchboxes full of EQ, or I got one lunchbox full of EQs, one lunchbox full of compressors. I'm I got a two different 1176 compressors. This uh, standard auto audio Levelor, which is a cool little. 
basically like a distortion box. So if you had like a trash mic, you really, really wanted to trash it up. Mm-hmm. It's like running it through an amplifier in a 500 series. It's pretty awesome. And then I have these uh, little brutes, which are like LA-2A clones in a 500 series format, which I use for vocals and bass a lot. Um, and then another thing that's really cool, which isn't very expensive at all, is that radial, um, what's it called? EXTC. It's basically a, a way of, like, if you had some uh, guitar pedals and you wanted to patch from Pro Tools in straight into a guitar pedal or out of a preamp straight into a guitar pedal and into Pro Tools, yeah. it's kind of a it's kind of like a guitar pedal interface. Um, and those aren't very expensive, maybe like 150, 200 bucks or something. Um, and that'll open up a whole new world of sounds and creativity. Cause you can be like, cool, like let me run my drums through a big muff and you can just take a big muff and plug it in mm-hmm. and it works, you know, which is a lot of fun. And then I have this other bay to the left of my desk, which has, you know, uh, it has like two of these Reve, um, replica 1176s i had built and then i've collected uh two two sets of these old dbx uh 118 119 which are they used to be like a stereo compressor for uh vinyl records but there's the same as the dbx 160 just without an output trans transformer so you couldn't like there was no makeup gain on it but you can basically just run it back into a preamp for Mm -hmm. its own makeup gain now if you wanted or just clip gain it in pro tools and then i have like an absurd amount of BBE Sonic exciters that I never use. <laughs> it's like a, it was an eBay splurge and I used it for like a week. I was like, this is terrible. And I just, they've just been sitting in my rack now. So if anybody wants four sets of BBE, <laughs> BBE Sonic exciters, <laughs> I'll get you a good deal on them. Nice. They, you know, it's so funny. Cause like listening to what your description uh, two years ago, it would have been just foreign to me, just about everything that you're saying with the exception of, a, of an SM57. And, mm-hmm. and, and so it's, it's been really fun and exciting to learn this stuff. And I know that some of our listeners are with you every step of the way with what you're describing. And some of us are going, what is he talking? Is he still speaking English? And, yeah. and so, and, and I think there is a, a large group of us that are, are trying to play catch up. And it's really fun. And it's kind of opening up a whole new world of getting sounds and being creative and really feeling connected to your instrument with these new possibilities. And um, so, uh, as far as the drums themselves, I mean, we don't really talk a lot about gear, but. Um, are you using like one? I know you've got a couple different setups. You've got a regular drum set in your A room, and you've got like an acoustic breakdown set. Is there a go-to kit or a couple of snares that you find yourself using most of the time? Yeah. So as far as drums, there's de- like in snare drum world, um, it's kind of funny. I have a one producer. He's like, you have all these snares, yet you only use one, and I. Yeah. I kind of fall into like this this habitual thing with snare drums, um, but I kind of I kind of uh, I call it the trilogy, um, the Black Beauty, Superphonic, and the Acrolyte. I mean, those are the the three snares. If when I go to sessions, I bring one of each always. Yeah. Before I before I ever grab like an oddball or like something else. I mean, between those three snare drums, you can really get any sound that you really want. 
besides like maybe some like I have a, a Radio King which does something completely different and different old wooden drums that do stuff a little different. But honestly, uh, if if I had only three drums to choose for the rest of my life, I could I could work every day on a Black Beauty, a Superphonic, or a Acrolyte. It's crazy, man. It, it is so funny. You see these people with these huge racks in the studio, and I've talked to so many players, and they said, yeah, but I, I always use this one, two, or three drum all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, dude, I love I love snare drums. I have a lot of snare drums. It just, you know, there's something about when you play a Black Beauty, it just sounds like so many recordings you've already like you know what i mean same thing with the superphonic that's probably the most recorded drum in history it's like grabbing a telecaster for a guitar player mm-hmm. right like you're never going to go wrong with the telecaster you're never going to go wrong with a strat you're never going to go wrong with like a jaguar if it's the right thing which is like the uh, equivalent of like an acrolyte yeah. for a drummer yeah it's that vibey like kind of crappy not so expensive alternative <laughs> in the in the fender uh, format you know I think a lot about snare drums like I do um, electric guitars because I'm, I'm constantly asking guitar players to grab something different, you know what I mean? So I've kind of like in my mind, I'm like, cool, like my Superphonic is my Tele and then like the Black Beauty is my Les Paul and then the Acrolyte's my Jaguar. So I, I kind of, if I was to go to a session as a guitar player, I would have to have those three guitars, wouldn't I? You know? Yeah, right. Be weird. And then, you know, sometimes you might have a 335, which would be like something vintagey and wooden, probably mahogany for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm looking at um, this old, uh, I think it's a Slingerland marching drum. It's 14 by 10 with wood hoops. That could be like a 35, a 335 kind of thing. You sure, know what I mean? For sure. Me. Yeah. Now the analogy makes a lot of sense for sure. There's some standards and then a couple outliers. Yeah. And then, you know, you can... You can really get into stuff. Uh, I think that it would be imperative to just have this, the three or four basic things you would need first before you start going for an electric 12-string mandolin. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got a ganjo and this... Uh, <laughs> this uh, okay, great. We'll call you for sure. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. I was kind of hard rock dude growing up. I mean, that's what I liked. My parents hated country. Like, actually, like, would not allow me to listen to country. Um, I had to wait till I was 18, you know what I mean? Like, it was just outlawed in my house. They thought it was the lamest stuff ever. So they were into, like, 80s rock and grunge and all kinds of, I mean, like, 70s rock, but mostly, like, arena rock and grunge. That's what I was raised on. And hard rock. I mean, like my first concert was a Tool concert. Wow. Um, and so that, that was kind of like, you know, from ages eight to 14, like that's what I was spending my time learning was like Danny Carey feels. And I wanted to have, um, the double bass kit, you know what I mean? With three, three racks up, up top and two on bottom. And I know, um, when I was kind of a a teenager, that's when YouTube and everything became a real big deal. And I started, I started, uh, 
checking out uh, Mike Johnson back in the day um, when when he was just on YouTube doing Mike's lessons, like those free like um, like linear drum fill patterns from 2006. Like that's that's what I, I started learning a lot of stuff through him, and then I started reaching out to. I started like exploring different online um, uh, lessons that I guess just like in a written format. So like if you went to remo.com, like there would be a lesson page and you could download um, music, you know what I mean? To learn and lessons to learn. Yeah. And so I I ended up with like a, when I was like 13, I guess, or 14, I ended up with just a book um, of printed out paper Go and uh, about I was really into I kind of graduated from like I guess uh, I was <laughs> I graduated from Creed to like Latin music for some reason and uh, we got really really interested in in polymetric um, practices yeah and so Latin was perfect because I could do like a sambao on my on my on my feet and then solo over the top and that was when I started getting into the Latin polymetric kind of stuff that's when I thought that. I wanted to be a clinician because <laughs> yeah, I was like, Oh cool. Like I'm going to do like, you know, 30 minute solos and like, I'm going to just, uh, I was really into like building a solo and I, I used to like do the guitar center drum off competitions and mm-hmm. all that stuff back in the day. But that was, I was really, really into that. And that's what I would practice for a long time is just different um, independence exercises. And I would think I, I went through like that new breed one and two book. Sure. sure. Um, and, and so that was kind of my drumming upbringing. And then when I graduated high school, I went to college in Southeast Texas at this uh, little tiny college called Lamar university. And they had a commercial music performance degree. So I was going to go, I wanted to go to either North Texas or um, I was even thinking about going out to uh, MI in LA. And I went out there and sat in on some classes and I was pretty disappointed in the MI thing. And so Mm. I uh, ended up getting like a full ride to this school, which was only 45 minutes from my house. And they had just started. I was like the first student enrolled in this commercial music degree. And so they had brought in a bunch of teachers from Nashville um, to teach. Wow. And so they had kind of balled out cause they, it was their first year. It was a, a brand new program. So they wanted to be great. And basically what my, my, my schooling was is, um, more or less just like how to be a working drummer. Like my, uh, my teachers were guys that had like big church gigs and would go out and, and play cover tunes and, um, professional wedding bands and stuff like that. And we're doing sessions in Houston. And so, um, my degree was, um, I guess on paper, it was, it was commercial music performance with emphasis in session musicianship. So like my, uh, I think my private lessons, we would do like two a week where you would just walk into the studio and they would hand you a chart yeah. And then you would play down the chart, and then your your teachers would grade you basically on your performance. Wow, that's man! It, it's ama- the probably the attention that you got in that environment was so so unique compared to somebody going into a larger university. It was, and our I mean our our classes were so small. I mean, there's probably sixty seventy kids 
over the like in the, in our entire class, like in the engineering and music performance department. And a lot of what I mean, basically what what our degree was is kind of like just when you move to Nashville, it's it's like a degree in how to be a working musician. So, like our uh, our our one of our uh, electives or like it was like a I don't know if it's an ele- if you would call it an elective but like one of the requirements is you had to be in a band and <laughs> uh, each semester the band would have to perform like 90 minutes of music or something like that and so essentially what it turned into was um you know each semester you'd be in a different cover band and so one of them would be like Motown one of them would be country one of them would be rock one of them would be kind of like a funk or jazz kind of thing and so throughout each semester, you would be in a different cover band and you'd have to learn like 90 minutes of standards for each cover band. Wow. So that's what that's kind of where I, I got turned on to country. It was like I had to learn Diamond Rio meet in the middle. And I was like, it's so I was like, it's so simple. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you try and keep it a secret from your parents? Uh, I was I was an adult at this point. They couldn't uh, they couldn't dictate my decisions anymore. But they always thought it was they always thought it was so funny that I gravitated towards country, especially like moved to, moving to Nashville. Like they always thought I'd move to L.A. because all we ever listened to was rock music. Um, but yeah, I mean that was being in college in Port Arthur, Texas. I mean that was really what kind of opened up my or broadened my horizons to uh, just the more of the working aspect of it and and just being as well versed as possible in different styles and really digging into like what makes something what, like what characteristics um, dictate, you know, a certain style and, and digging into that. And I think that that, the way that they did that was pretty awesome and brilliant. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, like, you know, if you get called for a Latin gig, you know, you need to be able to and right. integrate yourself for at least the 90 minutes at the gig, <laughs> yeah. the gig last, you know, you don't have to be like, you know, sh- shredding on Latin stuff in your free time. But I mean, you need to be able to kind of say yes to as much th- as many things as possible. It's it. There's so many benefits to having a, a, a basic understanding of so many different styles. And Latin is one of those things that it's just fun to practice. It's fun to solo over. And it really forces you to explore different levels of, of independence and groove. And then when you go play that gig where you have to play meet in the middle, then you can concentrate on groove and and playing with others and you know it, it's it's a lot of fun. I kind of had a similar background and never played country growing up, but it was like Latin and jazz and pop and some rock and stuff like that. And then coming to Nashville, and I, I mean I I enjoy playing a lot of the country stuff that I do, um, but I do spend. It's been interesting during the shutdown not playing regular gigs for the last two months I've it's I think a lot of people are in this position where we're like okay what am I how am I spending my practice time because I don't have to learn songs for a gig or uh, you can you know. actually practice practice now I know I know and then it's and then I'm choosing what songs I want to I'm, I'm dissecting a, a Matt Chamberlain track and a Tower of Power track and you know some other things like that that uh, I'm like 
uh, I should probably work on this Luke Combs track to make sure that when they call it next, I'm. And I know you played on a Luke Combs track, man. That was. was I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that, man. That's really cool. So that was, uh, man, kind of just a, a crazy, unforeseen thing, really. Uh, what's funny, I was actually on the road. I was filling in for Keith Anderson. I forget. This was in the summer of 2016. Okay. And uh, Luke was opening up for us. And uh, what's funny, like, we, we did this terrible gig and, like, it was maybe Alabama or something. It was like a first-year festival, and it was awful. And so we spent like the whole weekend just complaining about how terrible this festival was. And uh, went home on Sunday. Monday morning, I went I went into the studio, and I was supposed to do this track for this producer buddy of mine named Sammy. And uh, yeah, in walks Luke. It's Luke and Sammy and uh, Michelle, uh, Luke's manager. And I was like, hey, you know, I just met him that weekend. Um, I was like, hey man, what's up? It's crazy seeing you again. And uh, we're all in just one room in a house on like the Lipscomb University campus. And I cut these drums. I mean, probably took 30 minutes mm-hmm. and then they left. And then fast forward a year later, I guess they had tried cutting that song um, on one of the, the major sessions that Sony had done for them. But I guess they, they could never beat the demo that Sammy did. So they gave Sammy an actual budget to 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 upgrade the demo. And so we um I think he kept yeah, he kept my drums from the demo. Yeah. Um and so they got, ended up getting upgraded um and they made the record. I, I think I think they just upgraded the whole demo, if I remember correctly. He might have added some stuff. Maybe he redid vocals, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of how that whole thing happened. And then uh, you know, if it wasn't crazy enough that it got upgraded on a record, which is great, um, they they ended up using it as the third single, which is cool. I mean, because that's the most important as a new artist, you know. Right, right. And so that one ended up going number one, and yeah, it was just a crazy, crazy course of events, really. It's so unpredictable. It's really, it's really amazing how all that stuff works, and it's hard to plan for any of it. You just need to throw everything at the wall, dude. It, it really, it really uh, reinforces like the belief I have that you got to treat everybody like they're going to be the next big thing. Because yeah, I mean, in that moment, the, I, Luke Combs was nobody. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? He mm-hmm. was. He was no different than like the guys that were like working at Chewy's, you know, that sang on the weekend. I mean, I mean, he was doing a lot more than that, but I'm saying like it could have been the same guy. It just could have been some random dude from out of town, even. You know what I mean? It was the same type of scenario. He was working at a restaurant better than Chewy's, is what you're saying. <laughs> but but what's better than Chewy's is I mean, <laughs> it's really you set the bar high on that one, man. I like Chewy's. They got. They got the jalapeno ranch. You yes, can't eat it. Yes, it's true. Hey, uh, if you're a real man, you'll order the um, the hatch green chili sauce. And then see now that sounds like a challenge. But and, and mm-hmm. next time I'm out, I, I will. On that track, man, I I listened to it for the first time yesterday, and it's a cool part, man. It's like there's some movement in the snare drum. You could have just played straight two and four. And again, I just listened to it yesterday. But there's some there's some movement in the drums. Was that informed by anybody on the session, or was that just something you came up with? 
you're talking about like this, the second verse thing. Yeah. Or do you remember? <laughs> so I remember I was, uh, I get asked about this particular section a bunch, um, because it kind of shouldn't have made it, you know what I mean? It shouldn't have made it to the actual record cause it's a little out there, but, um, <laughs> It's very it's very drummery, which I'm 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 happy to say that I got I got to sneak in a drummery part. Yeah, yeah, it is, dude. Commercial country you say that. thing. It shouldn't have made it. That's funny. It no, it, it it in all actuality probably should have been replaced. You know what I mean? But it didn't. It made it, and uh, it's cool. The uh, the the little lick going in is like one of the Steve Gadd inverted doubles. You know, mm, um, okay. and so coming into that second verse, it was like one, two, chicka 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 Mm-hmm. kind of thing and and then it got sammy's brain going and so we we i think most of that pass is just my first pass and then we did like um i think we went through that second verse a couple times and came up with some of those weird breaks and stuff a lot of those weird breaks were like weird ideas that sammy had that kind of went with the scratch bass track that he had mm-hmm. um and so we kind of with anything kind of found common ground between what the two of us wanted on that second verse, but it it turned out cool. And yeah, I do remember that. And for whatever reason, I was really into Adam Deitch uh, when I was like way younger and he would do all this like stepped linear inverted double groove stuff. Mm -hmm. And that week I remember like just shedding some of that and it came out on that track it is interesting, and that's a really good point, you know, like what you're working on, what's kind of in your headspace will find its way for better or ill. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, make sure you're practicing the right stuff because <laughs> it, it will come out. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that that's a perfect example. I mean, like I said, that probably should have been replaced, but it snuck its way through. So. Well, no, I mean, it, it, Luke, I like Luke Combs, man. I, I like a lot of his tracks. And uh, One Number Away is the name of the song. I encourage people to go check that out. Uh, it's really cool. I really had no intentions of producing. I, I got into a studio first with the intentions of just basically using it as a as like a launch pad for um, internet overdubs and just for other producers to come and get drum tracks from me in Nashville. And then what happened was I uh, was doing a lot of these gigs with like young singer songwriters who were getting publishing deals. And um, this was, I mean, in 2012, like there, it wasn't uncommon for you to have a $1,200 budget for a demo. Right. Um, and so these friends of mine were getting demos back and they sounded awful sounded terrible. And I knew what kind of money they were spending on it. And at that point I was like, well, dude, I got 16 channels, you know what I mean? Um, in a really nice treated room on the row. Like I can make it sound just as bad for way less. Way <laughs> le- <laughs> you like that bad sound? Then come over to my studio. Yeah. We'll, we'll cut, <laughs> we can do it for half the price and sound just as bad. <laughs> you shouldn't have put that on your business card, man. That was a bad decision. Yeah, just find studios. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> brought to you by All Right Parking. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So uh, yeah, I started just kind of helping out um, friends with demos, and so I was doing like some cheaper demos and doing the full band thing. And uh, I was of the mindset like every room needed to be utilized because this this uh, studio wasn't huge. I basically had a tracking room, 
one ISO booth and a control room. So my control room became uh, like the acoustic room um, and the um, the ISO booth was my amp room and then the hallway was where my scratch vocal was. So I just kind of out of necessity started engineering while I was tracking the stuff mm-hmm. um, using like a remote control screen. And like I said, I didn't have a whole lot of outboard gear either. It was mostly just preamps. So, I mean, once I got the level set, I was good to go for the whole day. Um, so I started engineering and producing and playing on these demos for my friends. And that kind of sparked a lot of interest. I mean, it really just kind of got my gears turning because I was like, oh, this is cool. It's such a great creative avenue and something I felt like I was potentially uh, good at as well as drumming. And it was just it was nice to be able to kind of call like the directive shots of a song I believed in that I, I liked. And it, I wasn't doing any songwriting and I used to always write um, this. I used to write in the bands I was in growing up. So it kind of felt like a little bit of that. I got that creative Avenue back by producing. Right. And so, yeah, I've been basically, I've been doing, I've been producing alongside drumming on, uh, since probably 2012 or 2013. Wow. And just picked up a lot of tricks, you know, just like engineering, just along the way, um, just countless hours of, of having to figure stuff out on my own. Have your ears changed in the time that you've been producing? Completely. In what way? Um, so uh, I guess... Like one way, something that we can reference that we've already talked about is like mixing yourself in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of that I probably wouldn't have had any idea about if I wasn't on the other side of the speakers after it, you know, because I remember like you have to fight the compulsion of what you're feeling as a drummer sometimes and use like the rationality of what you've learned as a producer to inform like your decisions. So like I would I remember countless times playing something that I thought felt great and I was really happy and energetic about it that listening over the speakers and for whatever reason like the drums just didn't sound as good and like the cymbals were like going into all the mics and I was hitting too hard Mm -hmm. and it was affecting the phase in that room that I was in and like all those tracks that I would hear even after they were mixed it's just like this drums never punched the way that I was physically hitting the drums you Mm -hmm. know right because it was it was feeding back in the room and uh, kind of negating all the passion I was putting into the drums. So part of like producing, I get to hear the final product all the time, and I get to live with the actual track. So it's kind of really helped me to know where my um, parameters are as far as dynamics and uh, what's going to sound good on tape. You know. There- um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about you know leaving space with drums and 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 dynamics. Do you find that some of those same rules apply to production? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, if you, I like to think about a song as like a sandbox, and the sand being a frequency spectrum. And as soon as you put the drums in there, that takes up about sixty percent of your sandbox. Wow. Okay. So. Um, a drum kit will, will go from, you know, 30 Hertz, 20 Hertz at the lowest. I mean, you're not going to hear 20, but so just say like 30 to 40 Hertz all the way up to 18 K to 20 K. Yeah. If so, I mean, that is the entirety of the spectrum. 
Um, so you got to be really sensitive to what you add to a production in the low end department, especially, um, a lot of people like to, you know, it, like loops are cool, right? Loops are hip and everybody loves loops. Mm-hmm. I love loops, but when you're, when you're, um, creating loops, you got to be very, very aware of the sonic space that that loop is going to be taking up. Right. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of that is in regards to the stuff below 150 Hertz. And that's maybe that's why there's not multiple bass players on sessions. <laughs> that's exactly why. And, you know, as a producer, I'll normally uh, mute the loops when the drums are in or like mute the kick drum when the drums are in um, on the loop um, because that stuff just fights a lot. Um, also, I mean, having a bass, two electrics, keyboards, vocals, I mean, the less the less your track count is, the bigger everything's going to feel. Which is kind of like a, um, it feels a little backwards because now we have the capability of maxing out Pro Tools with like 250 tracks. Right. But um, it's, again, it's like everything has, everything's going to take up a, a portion of that sandbox. So how how clear and how accurate do you want the, the sandcastle you're building to be? You know what I mean? And my understanding is like depending on the style of music, like for pop country, the vocals need to be in front. With mm-hmm. with with rock, vocals are closer to sharing the same sonic space as the rest of the band. Is that a yeah. fair assessment? It is, and that that also uh, that also would be it now would be a good time to to say like that's probably why why country mixing engineers love ribbon mics on overheads hmm. because it stays out of the way of the vocal you're okay. not getting you're not getting a whole lot in the that 5k 1 to 5k range like you would a condenser that you're going to have to cut out to make room for the vocal oh wow okay and that if you think about too like country music if the the stuff that you hear on like country radio or like the bit like Luke Combs is a great example. Like Jim Cooley mixes all that stuff and he, he mixes dark, you know, and the darker you mix, the more that vocal sticks out without anything else competing with it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know what you're saying. Uh, it, there's a record that just came out, I think this weekend, Joseph Gallant, mm-hmm. uh, break all the rules is, uh, something that Tim Denbo, a bass player that you use a lot mentioned. Uh, did you produce that? I did not. Um, okay. My buddy Cole Phillips produced it, and we tracked it over here at, at at my place. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I know. I know Cole. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So I do a lot of that stuff too, man. Like, I, um, I, other producers will come over with a hard drive, and I'll dr- play drums and engineer, and um, give them the the hard drive with their session at the end of the day. Gotcha. So, so on the on the projects that you do produce. Uh, how involved are you after the product is complete? Um, as involved as I possibly can be. I mean, like, I guess some some people would kind of think of as a producer as like a a guy with with contacts in the industry or someone who could open up doors. And like, unfortunately, like I'm not really in that spot yet as a producer to to be like in the role of like manager or executive producer. Um, or Mm -hmm. I definitely try to hook people up as much as I can with people that I think that would, um, uh, help push their career. You know what I mean? But, um, it definitely is kind of 
like I, I would feel like my job primarily is still in the creation of the music and not so much in like the managerial aspect of it or um it or like even like the publishing side or anything like that sure. i mean i i kind of stick to being in the studio and and creating and then there are a couple people that like i i am you know in talks with a, a small like indie label about producing an artist which would be you know it would be a little bit more involved on the back end um but most of the stuff that I'm producing right now are independent um, artists. And so they need a place that they can get like a quality single done or like maybe they want to do an EP, but I'm not doing a whole lot of like label projects uh-huh. and I'm not doing a whole lot of, um, I'm doing some publisher demos, but I'm not doing a whole lot of like developmental type situations. Gotcha. That's just like, that's a whole another wing of the industry in some respect totally is yeah Yeah. totally is Mm -hmm. i mean and some 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 producers will pick um three or four projects to work on for a year that kind of thing but then you know that that increases your overhead for the per you know for each each project is you're gonna it's gonna it's gonna cost more or they might be investing a lot of time and energy to trying to get this quote-unquote artist signed and uh, hoping that they'll receive some sort of monetary gain on the back end of it. Yeah, I, investing in their, into them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm kind of leery of, of any anything like that. And uh, it seems like most of the people that come to me are, are just really interested in like, man, I need to get like some songs done correctly. You know, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily like, man, I need someone to help me make it or mm-hmm. anything like that, you know. Um, but... I definitely do try to do what I can um, to help like people connect with the people they should be connecting with after they have something um, to actually show, you know, cause a lot of people, like I said, are indie, indie artists, or it might even be like the first song that they've recorded. Um, so they, they might actually need some stuff to take to meetings to publishers. And so if that's the case, then I'll definitely hook them up with like some of the publisher contacts that I have and, uh, manager contacts that I have and, and get them in the room, you know, but I wouldn't say that I have the capabilities of like getting anybody signed per se. For me, it's like, I, I don't want to have too many in irons in the long-term fire. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it is something like I, I actually have a meeting on Monday about something like that, um, that I would like to put a lot of time and energy into, um, in more of a long-term capacity, but that would be like maybe one of two, you know, Yeah. that I would, cause I wouldn't even have, you know, it, it takes up a lot of time. Yes. So you want to have yeah. time to do like the, the gig, gig by gig type of production stuff either, you know, which I, I honestly love. I, I think I've, I don't know how many singles I've done this year already, but uh, I do, I do quite a lot. I think I did almost a hundred singles last year. Wow. As a producer. Um, and so I've kind of built my whole business model as the one-off single guy, you know? <laughs> but that's I mean, but variety, man. I mean, that's really cool. And it, it's just how exciting. And every week is different. Probably every other day is different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, between like... Go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Kimmy. Uh, I was just saying between... Uh, I, I would say like... 
like we were talking about um, just, I guess, players that have time off on the road right now. Um, I would probably say like the only advice that or the biggest advice I could give to anybody is just try to be as multidimensional as possible. You know what I mean? Regardless of whether it's even in your playing or in your technology skills Mm -hmm. or in Mm -hmm. your creative approach to things, because like, I think we've definitely seen that like, if you right now, unfortunately it's like, it's a terrible time to be just a live musician. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's like who would have ever thought that gigs would just go, just go away. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting moving forward and the way everyone is going to be thinking about, uh, how they uh, are making a living as a musician. Yeah, I think it's this is definitely going to kind of bring people, it's going to widen the gap of, of people that are technology, like technologically savvy and the people that don't have any interest in it. Because I think at this point, um, everybody's going to need to have some sort of small rig, at least if you're a drummer. I mean, at this point, by this point in time, at least being able to run tracks live is like, there's almost no excuse for not being able to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the musicians that you hire or for projects. You know, great players like my buddy Tim Galloway and Tim Denbo. Um, what do you look for when you're hiring a bass player or a guitar player or keyboard player for sessions that you're asked to produce? There's a lot of factors that go into it, right? And so, um, so most importantly, it doesn't matter how good you are at your instrument. You have to have, like what they call studio etiquette, right? So it's kind of knowing when to talk, knowing when to speak, um, having good energy in the room, not being afraid or not being confrontational when people ask you to approach something differently. Mm-hmm. So if if someone doesn't have good studio etiquette or a lot of these people are just my friends that I've known forever, so I know that I can count on them to be just an easygoing dude in the studio and malleable, right? Yeah. Um, that would probably be the most important thing. I mean, you have to play at a high level, so that's kind of already understood. But if you if you can't be malleable or, or you have a weird attitude or you're just, you know, not reliable, man, sessions start at 10 o'clock. If, you're, if you show up at 10, like, you're late. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so right. you got reliability, um, session etiquette, those are the probably the two biggest factors, and then after you get past that, you get into okay. If you, I like to think of players as plugins. Okay. All right. If you want to draw that analogy, like we all like to be as well versed as we possibly can, right? But in in actuality, everybody has their own little sonic stamp, whether they're aware of it or not, mm-hmm. um, that they bring to the table unconsciously. So, as a producer. I almost try to think of the tracking session as like a mixing session where it's like, okay, what's the vibe I'm going for? How do I want to get from point A to point B? Um, What's the workflow going to be like? Is it going to be a band in the room? Am I going to be building it up from the ground up, you know, Um, and instrument by instrument. So those are two, two different things that kind of determine the players I'll use. Um, but I, yeah, for, if for a full band tracking session, say I have bass, keys, acoustic, electric, um, the electric guitar player is going to probably swing the session the greatest in either direction. Right. Okay. Okay. So I, I will probably start with picking the guitar player, 
mm-hmm. for the the session, and that'll probably be the most important thing. Next to that would be the keyboard player. Um, those two kind of have they take up the most sonic space, and so depending on the vibe of the recording, I could I could justify using one player over another if that makes sense. Sure, so, sure. Like um, my buddy Saul is a great player, and I use him a lot. And he has this really cool kind of reckless abandonment thing. He plays on all the Luke Combs stuff. It's real organic. I mean, he'll just kind of let some stuff go that other players might fix. Um, But it has like a a quirk and like an energy. And um, it has like a, it has a thing about it that separates him from other people, right? So if, if I know that that, I would like that on a session, then I'll call him. If I know that I'm going to need something that's very part-centric and that uh, maybe the artist is a guitar player and is going to be really um, keen on recreating some of his own parts and elaborating on those parts, then I'll call somebody different, somebody like Justin Ostrander, who mm-hmm. has is very quick and um, happy to learn someone else's guitar parts and, and build upon them and make them better. Um, and so who is he's very organized in his method, right? So, like, if it's a track building thing, I would probably call somebody like Justin, who's gotcha. very organized gotcha. and can organize their thoughts. Tim Galloway is really good at that too, um, and and kind of present them in um, progression of of the song. So, like, rhythm left, rhythm right, intro. Uh, turnaround and outro lick and then solos you know is what would be like a really nice organized way of approaching building a song mm-hmm. and some people do that some people don't you know and everybody's different and so kind of depending on i think you just have kind of have to know what you're what you want the end goal to sound like and then the the players picking the players is the most important part of any full band production that you can do I just love the fact, you know, you're, you're talking about that studio etiquette, how important that can be. Especially, so important. Yeah, especially if you live in a town where there's lots of talent. I mean, not mm-hmm. necessarily Nashville, but, you know, this concentration of talent that exists in pockets around the country. And uh, now with remote recording, uh, it's even more important to have that studio etiquette available even on remote sessions. Totally. You know. Well, you got to remind yourself that um, being a session player is being in the customer service industry. Yep. So you you got to take your ego out of it. You know what I mean? Um, and that that's that's what I find. People will kind of shun someone's idea or think it's below them, and that's not. You can't do that. You know, music is music, and there's no such thing as a bad idea. I mean, I think. This, that's one that's one thing that people as they become more successful as a studio player they start being they start feeling a little bit more entitled to their ideas you know what I mean and thinking that um, one idea is better than the other and so I just try to keep I stick with people that are just super malleable and can roll with anything and have a good attitude about it and a smile on the face yeah yeah that's awesome man well tell us what's coming up uh, for the summer here so, um, well, you're having, I have a couple. Yeah. I have a couple projects coming up, and then I'm having one of those things they call a baby. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah. So, I uh, I'm trying to squeeze in as much as I can before July. That way, um, I'd love to take some time off and just really soak up being a dad, yeah. and 
and be there for uh, my wife. As I mean, it's our first child, so it'll be the pretty cool experience for both of us. So really, what's going on is like I'm starting Monday. I'm going to be basically planning out the next six weeks of life, basically trying to make sure that I have everything done as a producer that I need to have done before my child's born. But um, I'll I'll still definitely be doing some sessions. I probably won't for a couple weeks, but I'll still be doing some sessions if it's convenient and it's at the house. Um, I can break away for a couple hours and stuff and, and work. But I'm going to try to take about four weeks off. That's awesome, man. Well, congratulations, dude, as, as a father, and um, my oldest just graduated from high school and turned 18 all in one week. Um, wow. I can tell you, it's, it's amazing, and uh, I, I, I wish you the best with that, and I'm excited for you too, man. Thanks. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Um, I'm hoping he turns into a little drummer Better yet, a, a singer-songwriter or something like that. But um, <laughs> some somebody, man, he should be a professional harmonica player. Someone who doesn't have to lug any gear, right? <laughs> <clears throat> or uh, a nuclear engineer is what my son is going into school with. For <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> dang, yeah. So right. at least that's what he's going to start his major in uh, in the in an honors program. So and that's he, amazing. Yeah, he's smarter than all of us combined it's pretty nuts um that, grady thank you so much for doing this i'm so excited to get this out for people to hear and and for people to just we'll just continue to learn and grow as much as we can during this time and uh this is a great just our conversation here is just so timely and uh yeah man thanks for doing it thanks for for making these resources available for people you know i know now is a really difficult time for so many so many players and I mean I, I feel like all this all this you know knowledge if you want to call it knowledge or any, any of these tips and tricks are all all learned from someone else you know what I mean yeah, so yeah. I, I think just the, the the spread of ideas and and knowledge as it may be just is such a crucial part of being a musician in the 20th century you know what I mean just learning and 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 sharing what you learn yeah, you pass it on and... and pass along your findings. Right, and grow as a community. A lot exactly. of this podcast was started kind of from a selfish place. I needed to know stuff, and I needed to just get people on the phone and have a really good excuse to uh, to uh, to grow, you know. So it's mm-hmm. it's been fun, and it's, it's been nice to be able to share that as well. So, Grady, thanks, man, and have a, have a great rest of your day. All right, buddy. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bye. So there you go, my conversation with Grady Saxman. This couldn't have come at a better time for me personally. Spending time doing more recording and uh, learning how to produce the best recording I can with the space that I have and the equipment that I have. And it's just such a great learning and growing period of time for many of us that are stuck at home during this uh, shutdown time. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with the incomparable Charlie Hunter. Charlie is best known as an innovative guitar player slash bass player and has been a band leader for many of our former guests on this podcast. So stay tuned for that. For now, everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you are staying safe, stay positive, and hope to see you around soon. Bye-bye.